From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. This is Mike Williams, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. I am delighted to have my friend, my mentor, my collaborator, Dr. Yaron Brook here on the show today. Um, thank you for making some time to come in. Absolutely. We've got you coming in to, to talk about foreign policy with our leadership program of the Rockies. We used to have you do primarily foreign policy, um, and then you, I think, shifted to, um, and I think this makes sense, you shifted to saying, no, I want to talk about the U.S. economy or the economy uh, and, and capitalism more broadly than just uh, the application of foreign policy. And, and certainly that makes sense because you know, foreign policy foreign policy is like, you know, that's not the major issue, major issue. It's, it's like where it's happening today here now. Yeah. And it's not as much fun. It's, it's, there's no, it, 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 there's no, in a sense, upside. When you talk about capitalism, you talk about freedom, you're talking about prosperity, you're talking about, uh, you know, human success and human flourishing. When you talk about foreign policy, you talk about problems and how to solve them. It's, it's, there's no, there's a positive vision, but it's very narrow and it's not a big issue. But it was a big issue coming out of 9-11, and that's really why I started talking about it. 9-11 happened. I didn't think anybody was uh, providing a real answer to 9-11. I was a huge critic at the time of George W. Bush and uh, the U.S. response to 9-11. I thought, I thought everybody was weak, uh, and, and the, only, the only people who opposed Bush were people on the left or libertarians who were pacifists. And, uh, and I, I, I thought nobody was representing, in a sense, the Founding Fathers. Nobody was representing a, a pro-American, unapologetic, uh, nothing short of victory type of attitude. You don't mess with us. You don't tread on me. And you do. You know, you get crushed. You know, stay, out of, stay, out of, stay out of America. Um, nobody was representing that. America has not had a real foreign policy since World War II, really, and hasn't won a war since World War II, so it's not an accident. So I, I felt compelled, like, to be a voice in, in the wilderness, really, because in, in, with exception of people like Daniel Pipes and maybe one or two other people, nobody, nobody. But is, it, is that sort of, and, and uh, maybe this is where we spend some time on first. I actually wanted to go to <laughs> the, the more positive, but, but uh, is that now coming full circle where – People are much more interested in foreign policy. You know the the rise of China as a global threat, and um, no, it, because they, they they still there's still no coherent view of foreign policy. Nobody has a foreign policy. Trump pretended that there was an America first foreign policy, but he he doesn't know what America is, so he couldn't do an America first foreign policy. And and it was pure pragmatism. An America first foreign policy doesn't even meet with Putin views Putin as a bad guy, and you don't meet with bad guys. So I have a completely different view of foreign policy than anybody, anybody that I know out there in the foreign policy establishment or in, or in, the, um, you know, in the State Department or the Defense Department or anywhere that I know of. You don't deal with bad people. You yes, just don't deal with them. What, what I was asking is, is the, the emphasis not yours necessarily? Yes, but is that, is that coming around now where people are more – because it seems like – yeah, the, the whole issue of terrorism was so dominant uh, in terms of foreign policy for a while. People were wanting to talk about it and think about it. And, and then that seems like it's died down some. So now we're back to a broader conception of foreign policy. 
but it's still as confusing as uh, you know badly thought through uh, as America third, not even second. Um, there's no American, real American foreign policy today. There's no American foreign policy agenda today. Uh, there's no coherent policy. Biden certainly doesn't have it. Obama didn't have it. Trump didn't have it. Bush didn't have it. So you're really starting from scratch. You have to think in terms of first principles. You have to build up two, and you have to realize that even more than on capitalism, here there's nobody. On, I mean, the libertarians hate me. The conservatives hate me. The liberals hate me because there really isn't any any overlap with what do you think that is 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 there a disconnect i mean i i introduce you as you know giving a capitalist foreign policy yeah why do you think there's such a disconnect i mean you're such a lone lone voice in the wilderness or there or anyone has a uh, a principled view um is so such a minority right now well i think i think there are very few people with principles out there i think the but I mean, even even less so, like you said, in foreign policy. I mean, there are people, there yeah. are people who are defending free markets. There are people who are not uh, fewer and fewer, obviously. But there are people who are defending markets. Um, but there, it seems like no one has a principled view of how America deals with other other countries. No, very few. I mean, again, there's 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 a handful maybe of people out there who typically identify as conservative. Um, but but yes, I, why is that? I think because it's more complicated. I think because it requires, it requ- it's more explicitly requires a self-interested view. And it's self-interest that they shun. And one of Trump's appeals, I think, to people was that he pretended not to be an altruist. He pretended he was for self-interest. He pretended he had a conception of America first. And I think the common people respond to that. So. If you remember, after 9-11, when I would give my talks on foreign policy at LPR, I'd get a standing ovation every yep. single time, and not just at LPR. All over America, I'd go and give these talks, and I'd get standing ovations because there's a huge number of people who want to f- be proud of America, who want to believe in yeah, America. Yeah, and it's tapping into that emotionalism exactly. of saying, yeah, that, that's right. We that's are good, and we should stand up for what is good. But then when you start getting, like in everything, you start getting into the specifics Maybe with terrorism, they get it. But for example, right now, you know, you mentioned China. Right now, there's this panic over China. But, but, but there's so much confusion. There's so much, um, it, it's much more centered around a kind of panic that China is this rising economic power and we're not going to be number one anymore as if it's a competition, right? Rather than foreign policy is not about economics, Foreign policy about, is about the protection of the individual rights of Americans, protection from physical threat, protection from people killing us or stealing from us. Uh, China's not killing Americans yet, and China's not stealing, uh, you know, in, in, in explicit ways. You could argue it's stealing somewhat, but there are ways to deal with that that are, that are, that are short of war. But I think that is where people get confused, and that, you know, we... We were talking just before we came on here about the whole conflating foreign policy with economics, you know, just getting those mixed up and kind of jumbled together. And lots of people do believe uh, that China is stealing intellectual property and, and they're, they're stealing from American companies. So there's some issues around intellectual property, but the fact is 
90% of the people who care about China don't care about intellectual property. They don't. <laughs> they don't know what it is. They, for the most part, wouldn't, you know, what do they think of the Google, um, Google article case that the Supreme Court just decided probably wrongly about intellectual property? They have no clue. Maybe the Supreme Court just allowed Google to steal intellectual property from Alco. They have no clue. They don't understand. They don't know the ways in which China's stealing intellectual property. So that's not, that's a facade. That's a pretense at a rationalization. I think there's some innocence there. On, 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 like you said, the, the common person out there who's just the like common saying, person. I know that the, the China is, is uh, becoming more powerful. Yes. So the common person believes it's a zero-sum world. That's the fundamental. The common person believes, and, and Trump fed this, and Biden feeds this, and all, they all feed it, right? The common person believes that there's a big pie out there of wealth in the world, and the more China has, the less we have. And that, I mean, Trump said this. He said at some point, um, a trade deficit is like stealing, right? Having a trade deficit is bad for America. I mean, that's complete nonsense. It's yeah, every, con- every economist out there. I mean, yeah, virtually- there's no economist except for the guy who was advising Trump, uh, Navarro. Uh, Navarro, who's a complete idiot. Uh, it was a complete, complete idiot. Uh, <laughs> actually, we're talking about Deirdre McCluskey. Deirdre McCluskey is an economist, uh, a free market economist, a very good free market economist. And she said, she said, you know, uh, Navarro comes from, uh, got his PhD at Harvard, and so did she. And she said she's actually considering organizing a whole group of, of economics PhDs from Harvard, uh, all of them going together and returning their degrees to Harvard out of sheer embarrassment for having a Navarro associated with them. Um, so no economist believes that trade deficits are bad in and of themselves, um, and they're not. No economist believes that trade in China in and of itself is bad. No economist believes that trade with China in and of itself is a national security threat. Uh, you have to separate economics from uh, foreign policy. Economics is not, should not be done by the state. That is, the state has no role in economics, has no role in telling me whether I can buy a product from China or whether that product should be from uh, Brazil or whether that product should be from Arkansas. It's none of the state's business who I trade with. But what if the state itself is trading with them? I mean, if they're selling arms or not? not yeah, so, so that's a foreign policy issue. Once you get into arms, so once you get into force, that's a government policy generally, um, and once you get into arms and, and trading with arms, and, and yes, you could argue certain technologies are related to national security issues. Or strategic materials. Strategic materials. But that's complicated, and it's never framed in the right way, and it's very difficult, again, to differentiate between what here is true national security and what is posturing around uh, economics. So, for example, steel tariffs have nothing to do with national security. But it's presented that way. I mean, Trump wanted to impose tariffs on Europe, on automobiles, for national security reasons. That's an absurdity. And once they start doing that, how can you trust anything they say about national security? You, 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 you can't trust them. So I don't believe them when they say this technology. that Because I, I don't know. I'd have to study each one independently. And I don't have the the time or the knowledge or the or the breadth to do that, that's part of the problem of having a government as we have today that has no clue about American interests and about what they entail and about free markets and about, about what markets entail. And it's really, really important that people understand 
and, and this maybe leads us into the more positive topic, the massive, unquantifiable benefits that the United States, individuals in the United States, have received from trading with China. I mean, it's it's unbelievable how, and particularly, it's I'd kind say, of an unstole, untold story. Untold though, story. Yeah. Low income, low middle class, middle class America has lived well for the last forty years to some extent because of China. But more than that, global productivity has gone through the roof because not just China, China, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, all these countries, India have all liberalized economies, have become productive economies, global productivity has increased. As a consequence of global productivity increase, quality and quantity of goods has, quality and prices of goods have come down. So while we have engaged in massively irresponsible monetary and physical policy, we have massively benefited from the fact that we can import cheap, high quality goods that have improved our lives. And uh, the Fed can flood the market with dollars, and yet we don't get price inflation in the United States because prices should be going down. Because global productivity has increased so much, prices should be plummeting. They should be going down dramatically. Our, our standard of living should be going up hugely. It has to some extent. So uh, I want to reel back the years here and get your, you know, obviously it's, it's, hindsight's great, but what would have been a better foreign policy with regard to specifically China? You know, obviously you go back to Nixon and all the way forward to this, you know, to sort of the uh, going backwards, you know, because China was becoming a freer market and now they're seemingly going backwards in the whole issue with Hong so, Kong. So, you know, and- it's, a, it's a complex question, but look, I wouldn't have gone to China if I were Nixon because I think by going to China, Nixon, in a sense, endorsed Mao and, and sanctioned Mao and sanctioned maybe the, the, the greatest murderer in all of at least the 20th century, probably has more blood in his hands than Stalin or Hitler. Uh, probably killed about 60 to 100 million of his own people. Uh, starved them to death for, to a large extent. So I don't think Nixon should have ever gone to China. But there are people who would argue that that was the beginning yeah. of opening up the you, markets. And I'm fine with opening up. So open up the markets, let people trade. If they're willing to let people come in, let people come in at their own risk. I, would, I wouldn't open up embassy in China. I wouldn't have uh, closed my embassy in Taiwan. Remember, we closed our embassy in Taiwan. There's no American embassy in Taiwan. We kicked them out of the United Nations and gave China seats on the Security Council. We kicked them out of every international organization. The United States did this. Kicked Taiwan. Taiwan's a free country, right? So I would have maintained diplomatic relations with China. If China didn't like that, I would have t- said tough. Um, I would have opened up and said, people want to trade with China, go trade with China. They would have come begging for capital to us. Um, I would, To this day, I would not have an embassy in China. China is a dictatorship. I don't think we should treat a dictatorship as if they're a free country. China treats its own people horrifically, at least segments of them. Uh, but the average person might be a little confused by that when you say don't have an embassy, don't have uh, relations with them that way. But go ahead and trade with them. We benefit from the trade, so let's go ahead and trade with them anyway. Trade happens between individuals, not countries. So you don't recognize them as a legitimate government, qua country, 
But as individuals, if you choose to trade, if you choose to go to China, if you choose to build a factory there, it's your choice. You're taking the risk. The United States government's not going to jump in and protect you because it doesn't have diplomatic relationship with this country. It doesn't deal with them. So, you know, the, the, as long as you are taking the risks, go there at your own, at your own uh, risk. Now, look, I, the opening up of China, which started after Mao Zedong died, uh, started around 1978, um, has been a huge boon to, to the world and to the Chinese. I mean, uh, I, I think people should have a perspective of, you know, um, we don't only care about Americans. I mean, if good things happen to other people outside of America, that's a good thing. Well, Hundreds see, of people might say, hey, wait, you're you're this objectivist guy who's all about self-interest. What do you mean caring about the other people across the world? I love it world? when people succeed in the world. I mean, it's wonderful when people succeed in the world. First of all, their success resound, uh, you know, boomerangs back to me because the fact is that if they're successful, they're producing, they're creating, I benefit from that one way or the other. But the other thing is it's it's great to see just the image of people succeeding in life. If you go to China and you see the skyscrapers and you see the energy and you see people producing and creating and building, it's exciting. It's fun. It's fun to be there. It's fun to be around these people. It's fun to think about the human potential and what people are capable of. Um, and it's it's you care about living beings and you care about human beings. So, so, what, so, so I, I think it's amazing what's happening in China. So what would be a better foreign policy today? Because they are slipping backwards, it seems like. And the whole thing yeah. with Hong Kong, I mean, what would be the right approach for our government to take with regard to China today? So I would, I would go backwards. I would, I would basically tell the Chinese um, that I'm withdrawing my – I'm shutting down my embassy in Beijing. I'm bringing back my diplomats. Um, I, I'm uh, withdrawing funding from the United Nations because I won't sit with them in the Security Council. I am recognizing Taiwan as an independent nation. And by the way, we have a security agreement with Taiwan to protect them. So if, if we want to stick with that, then, then we tell the Chinese we're committed to this. Don't mess with Taiwan. I would tell them, look, I'm not going to invade you because of what you're doing with Hong Kong. But what you're doing with Hong Kong is wrong. It's immoral. Uh, and and you should be treated as as a as a nation. You should be treated as a pariah in on the world stage. Um, I would at the same time, uh, in a in a way that for many people doesn't fit together. I would lower tariffs to zero on all goods from all countries everywhere, unless the country's an enemy. And I only consider two countries in the world today enemies of the United States, Iran and North Korea. But other than that, tariffs should be zero. You could argue maybe there's some other countries in the Middle East. Wait, are you saying it. are you saying that we should have tariffs, tariffs on on uh, Iran and no? So North Korea. There are only two states of the world that I think are acceptable: zero tariffs or no trade. There's no let's tax Americans because we don't right. like the people they're trading with, right? And tariffs are tax on Americans. So. Um, with Iran, you have an embargo. With North Korea, you have an embargo. But there's either it's zero one. There's no middle, right? The U.S. should have zero tariffs with every country that it's willing to trade with, and 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 that should be the policy. That's basically zero tax. It's a, it's an additional consumption tax on Americans. It should be zero tax on Americans. Um, and foreign policy wise, I divide countries into three categories: friends, enemies, and in the middle. Neither friends nor enemies, and basically unfree. Friends should only be free countries. 
So friends slash free. Unfree and enemies, right? Friends, full diplomatic relations, defense treaties, whatever, right? Everything. You have a little United Nations for free countries. Enemies, embargo, you do nothing with them, right? You, 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 they don't exist, and if they, if they actually get aggressive, you crush them, right? In between is countries that are unfree, but that are not a threat to you. That are not, they don't have missiles pointed at you. They're not threatening you. They're not, they're not praying death to America every Friday. They're not launching terrorist attacks against yeah, and this you. And this is where you'd put China right now. So I'd put China right now there. They might move into enemy, but I don't think they are. And I don't think they will because I don't think it's in their interest to move to become an enemy. But I would put Saudi Arabia. I would put every country except, West, except European countries. Some Asian countries like Taiwan, Japan, Hong Kong, well, not, not Hong Kong anymore, but Singapore, um, that are basically free. And Singapore is teetering, right, because Singapore has a fairly authoritarian government. So you could argue it's, it's on the borderline. You'd have to make some judgment calls. Is Malaysia and Indonesia, are they free countries or not? They have elections. So you could argue, yes, they're free enough. Um, and then you have a lot of countries that aren't free. I, I, I would put Russia definitely in the unfree so I would treat Putin like I treat Russia. Putin's worse in a sense that he's an aggressor, military aggressor. I mean, he, he, he's invaded uh, Ukraine. He's, he, so I don't think we should go rush to, def to die for Ukrainians. But I also don't think we should treat Putin as if, he, as if he's our best friend. Uh, we should treat him as an unfree country. We should have no diplomatic relations. Again, we shouldn't have them in the, shouldn't be sitting with them in the, uh, United Nations. We shouldn't be doing these things with them. So divide it. I think if you did that, here's what I think would happen in the world. I think a lot of unfree countries would want to be free, partially because they want America's sanction. They want diplomatic relations. They want to be part of the umbrella. They would want to be part of our United Nations. They would want to be part of that. And suddenly they'd say, wow, these Americans and these Europeans or whatever, they're confident in their system. They really believe in this stuff. And look, their people want to be free anyway. And maybe there'd be more revolutions. Maybe they'd, be, they'd overthrow their governments. Even in China. I mean, the people of China don't like the communist government. I mean, they're willing to tolerate them because they're doing okay economically. But they don't like them. They don't like not having all the freedoms. It's just a matter of prodding them to do something. If, if we had a president, for example, who spoke up every time um, China did something bad in Hong Kong, or every time China did something bad to its own people, or every time China violated rights in a significant way, or tried one of their billionaires, although we're doing the same thing to our billionaires, I'm not <laughs> sure, but you know, tried one of their billionaires and, and maybe executed them for so-called fraud, but really it was just a, just a way to get rid of their billionaires. Maybe if we had a government that spoke up and, 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 and defended the Chinese people against their government, Maybe that'll give the Chinese people a backbone to, 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 to you know, get rid of their governments. So, well, and that's part, part of I remember you talking about the, the Arab Spring, those kinds of things. That's, having the moral sanction from Amer American leadership makes a massive difference in terms of being able to have those people start to pursue something, uh, you know, along the lines of a more free society. Yeah, I think the best example of that is Ronald Reagan in the, in the, in the, in the Soviet Union. I think, I don't think... The Soviet Union collapsed because we outspent them or whatever. Uh, they were going to collapse anyway economically. I think, I think they collapsed 
because Ronald Reagan and, and American leadership generally gave them the moral, the moral courage. What's that? And Thatcher, right? And I mean, Thatcher, and it gave them the moral courage right. to stand up to. So Lech Walesa, the, the, the leader of, um, uh, of the uh, Polish resistance, of the big Polish Union that ultimately helped overthrow the Polish Communist Party, uh, says that, you know, Ronald Reagan calling the Soviet Union an evil empire and take down this wall and all that gave them the spiritual strength to stand up to the communists, to go on strike, to go on demonstrations, to demand more freedoms. And I, people underestimate the value of the bully pulpit. People underestimate the value of a great speech. And I, I think you can change the world that way. And I think if we had political leaders who were principled, who, had, who, uh, who stood for something, who stood for freedom and liberty and articulated that case and projected that, I think you'd see a lot more liberty and a lot more freedom around the world. Do you think that most of the leaders don't stand for anything or do you think they stand for just the acquisition of power? I mean, and it seems like there is this uh, global, it seems globally that there's more of an acceptance or desire on the part of people for authoritarianism. And what, well, I think there is, but, but part of it is, part of it is, look, the mixed economy has failed. And, and, and if you follow Ayn Rand, you know that she said that the mixed economy is unstable. It's not a stable equilibrium. A mixed economy will always gravitate towards either freedom or towards authoritarianism. And for a little while under Thatcher and Reagan, it gravitated a little bit towards freedom in at least superficial ways. Maybe in England, not so superficial, but, but it, it gravitated towards freedom. But that's it. We had one prime minister and one president. That's it. Nobody else. Right, stood for anything close to freedom and liberty, and even they were pretty weak. So what's happened is, because it's unstable, it's gravitating towards less freedom. It's gravitating towards authoritarianism. And, and I don't blame the common person. Right? The common person out there has been told by our intellectuals that their life is worse off. I don't think it is. I think if they really evaluated their life, they'd realize they're doing better today than they were 30 years ago. But the rhetoric from the media, from the intellectuals, from the politicians, left and right, Fox, you know, Tucker Carlson, MSNBC, the same message. Um, inequality, the, the middle class is being screwed, the lower middle class, your, your, your income is the same as it was 30 years ago, your life, quality of life is not improved, ca ca but private I, equity but is going but after But they're you. just reflecting their audience, don't you think? I mean, you're, you, no. Yeah, yeah, I don't think... No, I don't, it's the other I, way around. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Absolutely the other way Fox and MS, MSNBC, inequality. they want ratings and dollar... No. But that, yes, the leadership, the, 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 the leadership does, but, but the leadership hires people who are articulate and who have ideas. And the only people who are articulate and who have ideas are populists. There's nobody else. Who are they going to hire? Uh, so it's true that if they hire somebody who's principled free market, there's not an audience out there for them. But how did we get to where the American people are so dumbed down or so populist? We got it through the constant injection of intellectuals telling us that, that uh, capitalism doesn't work, that capitalism needs fixing, that capitalism needs regulating. Oh, George Bush told us that in order to save us from capitalism, we had to undo capitalism for a while, right? We were told that in 2008. So we've had a constant, constant, for 100 years, we've had a constant barrage of people telling us 
that capitalism doesn't work. We can't expect too much from capitalism. We need the state. We need government. We need to be built. Capitalism doesn't help the poor. It doesn't help poor people. So we need the welfare state. Capitalism doesn't help old people. So we need social security. Capitalism can't do health care. So we need Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare. And, and if you tell people that over and over and over, of course they're going to believe it. Look, how many people... How many people with an education get economics? Very like few. five in all of America, yeah. right? So if they don't have an education, economics is hard. It's complicated. It's not easy. Uh, you know, we both, in NLPO, we have everybody reading um, economics in one lesson. I mean, one of the things that he, he really explains in that book is how economics is about the second level and third level and fourth level effects of our Ripple, policy. Yeah. The unseen, right? Well, how do you expect the, 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 the electrician, the, 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 the construction worker, to get the third and fourth level effects? They're not going to get it. But So it's the intellectuals. It's all about the intellectuals. Yeah, the intellectuals and, are corrupt. Cool and I was making a distinction needs. between the, the talking heads on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC versus the true intellectuals that, that have, have wrecked havoc through our educational but system look, up and down. But look, you know, it's... I don't think. I, mean, I, I think I've heard you say, and I agree with this: that that we get the politicians we deserve. Yeah, and, and it's it's because you know the American people, and and just like the Chinese people, you 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 have you have some control over your life, and you you make certain choices, and that causes the culture, and and they're reflective. These these politicians and these media people are reflective. But it works. It's it feeds off of each other, right? So. You had to have a particular culture to be able to elect a Donald Trump. But Donald Trump enhanced that culture. Yeah, so, so, for example, I know a lot of people who were pro-free trade before Donald Trump. Argued for it. You know, maybe they didn't understand all the intricacies. Two years into Donald Trump's presidency, they were all protectionists. Yeah. So it, there's a feedback mechanism, right? Yeah. And people buy into what their politicians what their leaders, what the media, they buy into it. Now, they're conditioned to buy into it by an intellectual framework, by culture, right? But there is a feedback. And when Ronald Reagan came to, to the presidency, it's not like everybody elected him because he was pro-capitalist. They mostly elected him because they hated Jimmy Carter, and Jimmy Carter was such a failure. But once he was there and he gave a speech, he had an impact. It's superficial. It, it, it didn't last very long. But he had an impact because people listened and people accept authority they accept what they're being told because they don't have time to you know Ayn Rand has a great line in, in one of the essays in Capitalism and the Deal about how can you expect the housewife to get all the, the intricacies of why a billionaire is a billionaire I don't blame people for hating billionaires they hate billionaires because they're being told over and over and over again that the world is a zero-sum world and the billionaires became billionaires by stealing from them so of course they're going to hate them now I can try to explain the opposite and I think they'll get it and that's my job, and that's what I try to do. But it, but how many people are doing that? Well, that, that brings me to the question of, you know, uh, the state of making the case for capitalism, for freedom. And, and in some ways, it, it it's just dismal, right? Right.